0: Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This morning we continue in a series we began a few weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, a series we're going to be uh, in uh, throughout this fall. Uh, chapters will be in throughout this, uh, well, this school year. Uh, the series this fall we're titling uh, a, a Kingdom Manifesto, and the reason for that is, comes from something that was said by uh, theologian John Stott who had declared that the Sermon on the Mount is the closest thing to a manifesto that Jesus Christ ever uttered. In this, he describes and defines for us what it means to be a Christian, to be a citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven. And in it, he reminds us not only how we live here as those who belong to him, but that we who are citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven are actually a picture, a snapshot to a watching world. Of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ, it's a very powerful, uh, uh, passion-packed series or or, uh, uh, through the sermon, and it is life-transforming. This morning we we come to Matthew five. Our our reading will be verses 17 through 20. Um, And so, as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer that He would speak to us. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving that You Lord, are not a God who is so far off that we cannot approach, but that you have come near in the person of Christ and drawn us near through Christ by your Spirit that we may gather in your presence. We worship you by offering our praises, which you are worthy to receive. We worship through offering prayers, which enable us, reminding us that we are conversing with you. But we worship you also by being shaped by you, for you have spoken your word and recorded it through your servants. And Lord, as we consider that word that was spoken, uh, I pray that you would speak continually to our hearts by your spirit. That you might not only give us understanding, but our hearts, our minds, our very lives would be shaped and that we would be shaped to be more like Christ as individuals, as a church. Lord, bless us in this time as we give our minds and our hearts to you, as you mold them in making them after your own. We pray this for your glory and the joy that belongs to all who belong to you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Matthew 5 verse 17 hear the word of the Lord do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. May he bless it and grant us understanding that we may become more like Christ. Charles Dickens' great classic the Great, ex- great Expectations is a story about an orphan named Pip trying to make his way in the world, trying to make him make something of himself, trying to make himself into something that according to societal standards, he had no reason nor right to expect to be. And yet the story has lasted through time. The story resonates with people from the time that it was written and continues to resonate with those who read it or watch the film version of it even to this day, and probably because other than the details, the story could be our story, at least the story of many of us. In the pages as it unfolds, it chronicles Pip's life from age seven until and into his adulthood. And as we see his life unfolding, we see a lot about him. We see his heart we see his heart extended and we see his heart broken we see his character and his resolve as his failures we see the positive aspects of his life as well as his own unworthiness everything is out there for us to see and in the end while we are left to wonder we are left uh, left to believe that he found happiness even if he never quite measured up to his own great expectations or expectations that others might have had for him and again the reason i think that we enjoy this story the reason the story spans the test of time is because it is the story for many of us we all have desires we all aspire and yet for most of us no matter what we have achieved we all feel like we have never quite measured up we have never become what we ought to be there's always something that is lacking and so in pip we see ourselves unfold in a fictional drama. Now the gospel of the kingdom which Jesus is declaring in the Sermon on the Mount uh, does make some significant proclamations and chief among them is that God is gathering a people for himself. Not only is he gathering a people but he is he's shaping a people uh, for him. And the scripture says that the people that he is gathering to himself are, are really essentially like Pip. They're, they're ragamuffins or at least spiritual ragamuffins. In other words, no one comes to Jesus on the basis of their own merit. We all come recognizing that we're broken in some way, that we are spiritually bankrupt or destitute. We are in great need, just as Pip was in a very, uh, very tangible way. And yet the story of the gospel of the kingdom is that God not only calls a people and allows us to belong to him, he adopts us and he provides for us, and he has great expectations for those that he calls to himself as well. And we find as we walk with him, as we study the scriptures, that God's expectations for us are even far greater than the expectations we have of ourselves. No matter how grandiose ideas of what you think your life is going to be or what kind of person you're going to be, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, when we look at these passages uh, and the way that Jesus is presenting them for us, we realize that God has a radically different plan, a radically greater plan, a deeper plan for our lives than what we have for ourselves. We see it in the attitude that is to be reflected in the, in the attitudes, which just radically transform not just a step of behavior, but how we are to think, how we are to value what it is that, that shapes our lives as well as uh, the actions that we have. We see it in the passage that we looked at last week with the salt and the light and realize that God has expectations for those that he calls to himself, that we will be used to bring transformation to the world, that we will bring preservation to the entire world. We realize what an awesome thing that is, really an overwhelming idea. Because most of us don't think that we really have that much of an impact and can have that much of an impact. Most of us realize that we are not connected, or we are weak, or we're empty, or we're just one. And even as we gather together as a church, the thing that's amazing is what we wonder how can we possibly make any change and as we gather together as a church on a normal Sunday morning we have if you put both services together we have we are larger than ninety percent of the churches that gather in this country and yet probably half of Williamsburg doesn't even know that we exist so what difference are we going to make as a people even in this small community much less to bring transformation throughout the world so whether we are single or whether we are corporate as the body of Christ Jesus says If you belong to me, you are salt, you are light to this world and shows us that he expects and he has promised that his people that belong to him are going to have a powerful impact, far more than our ambition would probably allow us to ever dream. And as we look at the passage this morning, we realize that Jesus has a different standard for our character as well. He has a standard of righteousness that is far beyond What any of us have measured, any of us have achieved, and what most of us would dream. We may dream that people would esteem us as having character like this, but to actually have the character that he describes in this particular passage is not only overwhelming, but it would be quite intimidating. And so we realize that the greatness of God's promise is that he's called us to himself, and he's made these promises. And he has promised that he who began a good work will continue to see that. It's an amazing, amazing declaration that Jesus is making and is speaking to us in these particular words. As we look at this passage this morning, we also need to realize that this particular passage is important. They're all important, but one scholar, one Bible scholar has said that this passage is the hinge upon which everything else swings, And declare that if we don't understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, we really won't rightly understand what he has said before before this, and we won't understand what he says in all of the verses that come after this. This passage in particular is that hinge that enables us to understand and to frame the life that God is calling us to. And what makes it all the more uh, amazing is that this hinge upon which the whole sermon seems to swing is hinged upon two very difficult passages, not difficult necessarily to process in our minds, but difficult to process how they might live out in our lives. The first of those passages is is this, when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, if I had just opened to this passage and just hear Jesus speaking that, and even with some understanding of what He has said before, the abruptness of this kind of just strikes me. If I had been one that was there listening to Jesus speak this, and it just moved on like this, I probably would have thought, and maybe even kind of mumbled under my breath, "Well, um, yeah, I, I wasn't." really thinking that. I mean, that thought hadn't come to my mind. I'm still kind of dizzy with this whole beatitude thing, and then you're telling me I'm going to make an impact in the life. I hadn't even been thinking about the law, much less that we're going to do away with the law. I mean, it just strikes me as somewhat odd, the abruptness and the fact that he begins with a statement that is correcting thinking that I didn't even know that I was thinking in the first place. And yet it does tell us something about the people that he was speaking to. And I think it tells us something about us. If nothing else, it tells us that there were apparently people who were wondering if he was going to do away with the law. Now, maybe it's because of his Sabbath practices and what became known as Sabbath controversies. I mean, Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, which in that day in a synagogue, that was a no-no. And then Jesus and his disciples on another time were spotted by the Pharisees and other religious leaders As they were walking through the fields, and they were accused of harvesting wheat and grain, what they were really doing is they were walking like somebody does through tall grass, might put their hand down, and then as the grains were caught between their fingers, they would squeeze and pull the tops off, and they had a snack as they were walking away. As simple as that seems, it was against the law. That was another no-no in that culture. And the religious leaders who saw them do that, they were scandalized. At the same time, they also saw an opportunity to accuse And so hence the, you know, scooping of some heads of wheat as opposed to harvesting wheat, which just seems like a whole lot more. Either that or they were far more hungry than most people uh, you can imagine. And so it could be that people had seen his practices and assumed, okay, well, he's going to do away with the law. It could be because of the nature of his teaching. I mean, the Beatitudes were radical. I mean, laws usually are things, here's what you're supposed to do and here's what you're not supposed to do, Right. But Jesus goes right at the heart and says, this is the way that you ought to have your mind renewed. This is how you ought to think. This is how believers, this is how those who are part of the kingdom feel. This is the value system, not just a step and actions of behavior, but a whole radical transformation way of thinking, which doesn't fit within the traditional understanding of the law. And so people may have assumed just by the nature of his teaching, which was so personally authoritative and so direct that he was going to do something else radical. Whatever it was, people were thinking, perhaps, it seems that he was going to do away with the law. And the religious leaders, the really religious people, the Pharisees, they were afraid he was going to do away with the law. So the Pharisees are people who wear the law as if they are the achievement badges that you might see in a scout troop You know, put the little sash on, and each one that you want to be known for, you just kind of wear those. And if anybody wonders about your character or whether they are better than you, they just kind of point to their vest of their laws and say, you know, can you measure up with these? Look at all the things that I do. Let's see see what you've got. Most people just kind of avoid that kind of a conversation, and they don't want anything to do with it, assuming that they're already undone. Somebody who has got that much to show for themselves, how could we ever possibly measure up? And so those people who look at the law as if it's something that is intended to validate them, something that they've achieved, somehow neglecting the fact that there are far more laws that they haven't kept, and that the law is far more pervasive than just our behavior, it actually involves our attitude, that we are to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbors, we are to, we're to actually have the right motive, not just do the right thing, because it brings us prestige, and image that we desire. On the other hand, there were people who had to interact with the people who liked the law and had realized that not only do the people who like the law wear it as a badge, but they wield it like a club. That the religious leaders, the particularly religious, have taken the laws, and not only do they say, I'm better than you, but they take the club and they pound you and try to remind you how pathetic you are because you don't measure up to their idea and to their ideals of keeping the law. And so while the religious leaders were afraid that Jesus had come to do away with the law, the masses of the people who had found the religious leaders to be obnoxious were hoping that he had come to do away with the law. Now, the reason that's important for us is because it's not uncommon to hear today someone declare, somebody probably who's grown up in an evangelical culture, well, I'm under grace, not under the law. One of the things that always struck me about that is it almost always seems to come from somebody who really loves the law that declares that they are under grace because, one, they've had to memorize that passage sometime in their little Bible clubs and they are quoting, it's a biblical passage, but they declare that. And so somehow it means that, make up for the shortcomings, that I'm better than you, but if you find any area where I'm hypocritical, well then you can't say it because I'm under grace and not under the law. Other people who have been beaten by the club claim that verse once they've learned it and realize, I don't have to measure up to you because there is no more law. I'm under grace as if the law has somehow been disposed of and been eradicated. What Jesus has said to us in this particular passage is that I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. And he seems quite adamant about it, because if you look at the verses that come after that, he doesn't just make that statement. I mean, look what he says following that. Verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, at least driving in this morning, it didn't seem to have passed away, so we're in that time. And the scriptures tell us heaven is never going to pass away, so it's kind of an attention grabber. Until there is no more earth and until there is no more heaven, which is not today, we can at least agree on that. Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, many of you understand what he's talking about there because the law has been written down, iota to letter. The iota is actually looks like our eyes, and so what he's saying there is not an iota, not the dot, the dot on your eye your, uh, that you, you know, use in your writing. If anybody is writing out the law or anybody's even thinking about the law and there's, they're missing the dot that goes on your eye, If there's one of those that's missing, then you're distorting the law. And Jesus says, you will not be where you would like to be as far as the kingdom goes. And then, particularly to those who teach. He says, if you who teach, not only if you remove, but if you who teach minimize even the least important let's pick it up verse 19 whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same he'll be called the least of them in and in the kingdom of heaven so jesus seems not only to make the statement but he seems quite serious that we hear that he's saying i did not come to do away with the law and the prophets and this teaches some important things that we need to understand. The old Anglican, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said that it, it teaches us something about parts of our, our, our faith. He says that we need to be aware of despising the Old Testament. See, there's this teaching that exists and is permeated. Really, it's a 20th century teaching that gets this idea that the Old Testament had its place But now its place is just basically as the placeholder for the New Testament. It's kind of like a book stand, but the only thing that matters is the the New Testament. And so the Old Testament is just irrelevant other than full of stories that we like to teach our kids, but what really matters is the New Testament. Apparently, Jesus didn't share that teaching because he said that if you remove anything from that, and when he's talking about the Law and the Prophets, the understanding of the Scripture, it's also when somebody's talking about the Old Testament, it was usually referred to as the Law and the Prophets. The law, particularly the five, first five books of the Bible. The prophets is the prophets that were coming and speaking to God's people who had been ignoring the first five books. And together, the whole of the Old Testament was referred to as the law and the prophets. And Jesus said, if anybody minimizes anything it's in that, well, then that must mean that it was pretty significant. Jesus didn't put a qualifier on that until such time. Well, maybe he did. The time will be when there is no more heaven and there is no more earth. That's not today, which means the Old Testament that Jesus proclaimed is of value for us today. We need to be careful not to beware of not despising it. Ryle goes on and says we need to beware of despising the law, and so thinking that something has replaced the law. The law has its place. Ryle goes on and also says we need to beware of thinking that Jesus has lowered the standard of holiness, as if somehow... He expects less of us than he expected of the people, Israel, that he called to himself. Jesus, in these few words, is reminding us that our faith is whole, and we share that faith with those who have gone before us. But in what he says, he also raises some questions. Primarily, what is it that we are to make of the law then? I mean, how should we think about the law? How should we relate to the law? I mean, Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with it. Paul writes to Timothy and, and gives us some help in this because Paul does say that, as he's writing to Timothy, is that we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So a couple simple principles we can glean from that passage is this, is the law is good. And since he says it's good if it's used lawfully, that reminds us that there are apparently people who will use it in ways that the law is not intended. Otherwise, there's no qualifier, there's no need. The law is good in itself. But some people tend to use it in an unlawful manner. But how is the law used unlawfully? Or maybe a better question is, how do we use it lawfully so that we get the benefit of what... God intended, that Jesus is not doing away with, and Paul tells us is good. Scripture teaches us that there's basically, there are essentially three uses of God's law. And it's important that we understand these. The first is to recognize that the law is a reflection of the character of God himself. Every statute, every command, every prohibition is a reflection of some value, some character, some aspect of God. When the psalmist declares that he delights in, it, in, the, in the, the laws, it's because he's recognizing something of God in it. The second use of the law is that it breaks us because it reminds us that we don't keep it. The law is not a series of laws. It's the law. And We're told that if we break it at one point, we're guilty of breaking the entirety of it, which is amazing when people appeal to the law and somehow think that it validates them. The law kills, is what Paul explains to us in Romans. The law never gives life. It's not intended to give life. The law reflects the holiness of God, and that undoes us. The law breaks us, but in breaking us, it drives us to the cross where we find the hope and the power that we long for. And so the first use is it's a reflection of the glory of God. The second is that it breaks us and drives us to the cross and the third use of the loss is it's a guidance for those who are in christ it's not only a moral restraint but it de- de- describes to us what brings god to light and how god has designed our lives to work and so that those who are in christ and recognize that they have been loved in a way that they didn't deserve because we only understand love when we recognize that we haven't loved we're loved when we hate and then in response we say to god standing amazed, how can I express my love back to you? Jesus was asked that question. He said, if you love me, do what I command. He didn't say, if you want me to get you to love you, do what I command. And that's the biggest problem that most of us have. He said, if you love me, do what I command. And in so doing, we find out that he's giving us a gift all over because his wisdom is demonstrated through his law. Now, it'd be easy to look at those three things and then check them off as if they are just simple points. And we got one, we got two, we got three. All right, I've got it down. But we have to recognize all the more important in God's wisdom and God's gift to us is that these are not just separate points, but these are interacting components. Now, I'm not a mechanic. Fortunately, I have one sitting in the front row, in case I get wrong here. But I am experienced with faulty electrical systems in my cars, particularly when I was in college, and soon thereafter the poor days when I was managing a radio station. You know that's uh, be a great hobby to have. I've always said if I ever have a spared million, I'd buy one as a hobby, but never again would want to make my living in radio. But as I understand it, the electrical system has several components. The ignition is what sparks the engine and gets it started, but it's the battery that has the power for the ignition to start. When the ignition is started. You have an alternator that works, but is not doing anything when the car is not on. It is the alternator that works to continue to recharge the battery, which is expending energy to start and to run the engine. Now, at one time or another, I've had a bad ignition, I've had a bad battery, and I've had a bad alternator. I imagine at one time or another, but I put it out of my mind, I probably had all three being bad, but that's a whole other story. But see, those three things have to work together in order for your car to work. If you have a good battery and you have a good ignition, you're going to get the car started, but you're not going very far. If you have a bad battery, you're not going anywhere. If you have a bad ignition, you're not going anywhere. The three things work together, otherwise, you're going nowhere. The reality is God's law, the three points of the law, they work together. They're not just simple components to check off. But the law of God that draws uh, draws our attention to God and reminds us of his holiness is what breaks us. But breaking us, we're driven to the cross where we find the mercy, the fullness of God's glory demonstrated in the mercy of Christ who's given his life for us and the fulfillment of the law. And in so doing, there's a power that is at work in our lives to turn our attention more to behold the glory of God and then to obey God's law. The irony, though, is we live this life and we don't obey the law fully. Maybe we do it more and more, but we don't do it fully, which means we're undone yet again, which drives us back to the cross, where we find not only that we have been forgiven, but we are amazed that we are loved more than we understood, which empowers us again all the more to obey God's word and then to see God's glory. These things work together. And it's important that we understand that's how the law is used lawfully. And one of the things that also is amazing to me in terms of the law being uh, useful, I think Jesus hints to it here, but Paul really kind of clearly alludes to it, is that the law is not used primarily for others, but the law is used first on us. Paul says the law, the law is good if, it is, if one uses it lawfully. Well, who's the one? Well, it's whoever it is, it's asking the question. Whoever it is, it's considering the law. So in other words, when I see God's law and see that it's good and see that it reflects that, the first responsibility I have is not to go tell you what you need to do, but to speak it to my heart to see where I come up short to drive me to the cross where I find love that I did not understand and power that I don't possess. The law is used to renew us, not as a weapon against other people. Now it can be used for other people, and it should be used in our relationships with one another, but only when it is being used with love in the first place. And so if Dalton sees that I may be acting in ways that are not consistent with what I profess to believe, or Dan sees me in a way, and uh, then they may come and they may ask what's going on in my life. And then they have a law as a standard by saying, "Well, you know, you seem to be doing this, or and the law comes. Not to club me down, but to bring me back. That's the purpose of the law. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. And it's important that we understand that, because understanding the law and how the law is at work within us when we use it lawfully is essential uh, to understand the second intimidating, difficult statement that Jesus gives us in this passage. We see that in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are very strong words. And Had I been sitting there that day, and as my mind gets cleared a little bit about his talking on the law, and I hear Jesus saying that unless... I am more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders that I will have no part in the kingdom of heaven my first response would have been to assume there's no hope for me you see despite the fact that the Pharisees are incredibly annoying and obnoxious they are quite an impressive people who just happen to have a bad PR agent Pharisees were the best and the brightest of their day and in some ways you might liken them to the Olympians that are in our culture and maybe even in some other cultures In this is the Pharisees were tapped at a very early age they were recognized to be the best and the brightest and they were set aside and sent to special schools where they would train in understanding the law and other spiritual dimensions. And so not only do they have an advantage because of their giftedness, but then they were schooled in these very things. Among the things they would learn in the school was to memorize all 613 laws, 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. They would memorize and meditate on those and then discuss how should these flesh their way out in the lives of the people of whom they would be put in charge of. In that day, if you didn't go into ministry, it wasn't because ministry wasn't your first calling for career. It was because you didn't have a choice in calling for career. And ministry was reserved only for the best and the brightest. Unfortunately for me, it's only reserved for the best looking these days, but that's a whole other uh, issue. But the Pharisees had an advantage, they were incredibly schooled, and not only were they aware of the laws, they were zealous in keeping the laws. And Jesus says, Yeah, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, you have no part of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if we understand that, we would ask ourselves, How can we top that? Let me give a practical illustration, the ones a little more, perhaps closer to home. Imagine, rather than Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you have no part of the kingdom of heaven, that he said, unless your house is cleaner than Martha Stewart's or some other OCD person, that you have no part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, your house may be clean, but she has all the advantages, I mean, not only does she have staff, she's got endorsements. I mean, if product comes out, they go to her and say, hey, use mine, so you'll endorse. And so everything is being done for her. She has all of the advantages in cleaning her house. And even if your house is clean, how would you know if it is cleaner than her house? You have this impossible standard that would seem to be undoing And that you would never have any security in whatsoever. But Jesus is saying unless your righteousness is greater than that of those who while not liked were respected because they at least postured themselves as those who were the most concerned about God and about God's things and custodians of God's law. Most real people just they didn't spend that much time thinking about God's stuff. Even if it occupied a significant part of your time, They, this is what they did. So how would you be able to do more? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be seeing kind of fleshed out for us what theologians call as the difference between an external righteousness and an internal righteousness. And the Pharisees, who are those who keep... You know, they really like the do's and the don'ts. They believe in an external righteousness. Their life is about what I do and what I don't do. They're not particularly concerned about their heart or their motives. But people who are Pharisees then and people who are Pharisees now, they keep a checklist and they, they think that if they score well, then they are righteous they believe in the external righteousness and if they care at all about the internal righteousness they somehow assume that it's going to come if i behave in a certain way then somehow i will become a certain way jesus offers a radically different approach an internal righteousness that not only works within us but then promises to eventually work its way out and saying that when his heart when our heart and our mind are renewed and changed and conformed to him then eventually the behaviors, that which we do, that which we don't do, that will be more like his as well. And Jesus says throughout this and illustrates it throughout this sermon that he works inside out, totally different than the way the Pharisees had functioned. Let's pick up the Martha Stewart illustration again. Imagine that Martha Stewart had every part of her house cleaned, at least every part that the TV cameras would show. But her closets, her attic, under her bed, they were all a mess. Things growing there, things living there, mildew. This is the heart of a Pharisee who looks good and will tell you that they're good, and from what all appearances and what is shown is good, and yet it is rotting on the inside. Jesus is saying righteousness is on the inside. It's interesting because as he's addressing this, this thing, the Pharisees are getting undone. Jesus is looking at Pharisees of old and today, the people who think that Christianity is a competition about being better. I'm, I love Jesus more than you do. My Facebook status shows that, and I, you know, my clothing, my wardrobe, everything does. It's all the external. And Jesus is essentially looking him in the eye and saying, you want me to accept you because of you. But you're not worthy. It's all about me. And the Pharisee is undone. Its in some ways the great equalizer, because the people who seem to have all the advantages, the ones who tell you that they are better than everybody else, they're leveled low, right? They're realizing that they can't measure up. Jesus is showing Pharisee despite their goodness, they're not good enough. And there's something somehow pleasing about that. At least I, I'm entertained by it. But still we have to ask ourselves, even, even if he levels them, demolishes them, where does that leave us? I mean, just because they're not any good, or at least not as good as they think they are, that doesn't help me at all. Where's my hope? And hope is what Jesus says. I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's the hope that he's wanting us to see and to focus. Jesus had fulfilled every prophetic prediction about the coming of the Messiah. Do you know how astounding that is? I read about it mathematically. Illustration, it's old illustration, many of you probably heard, but it continues to boggle my mind. It said that if you were to stack up silver dollars two feet deep and cover the entire state of Texas, with one of those silver dollars being something that should be found... And then take a blind man and blindfold him and tell him to go, walk however far he wants to walk, but come back, find that one silver dollar, first choice. The odds of him finding that are so astronomical that it's impossible. Some mathematician has said, but they are the same odds as Jesus fulfilling every prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, over the years as I've been in ministry, I've realized a lot of those really, really good illustrations aren't actually true. I have no idea whether this is. If you're a mathematician, you can come and tell me. But the imagery is real. The possibility, whatever the mathematical numbers may be, that Jesus would fulfill every prophecy uh, that was predicted about the coming Messiah is mind-boggling, mind-blowing. But Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And Jesus fulfilled the law as well, not only by living a life that was yielding perfect obedience and perfect devotion to God the Father as we are called to do, but by submitting himself to death so that he would pay the price for the demand that we all have upon us and yet we fail. He has satisfied the fullness of both obedience and the demand of the punishment and fulfilled every aspect of the law in this life. And the good news of the gospel is that because Jesus has done that, and if we are to trust him, that we are not only forgiven, but we are declared as having his righteousness credited to us as our own, simply by trusting him. And that's vitally important, because Jesus, as he's saying, I came to fulfill this, he's drawing our attention to him, and we can't miss this, the, the deep aspect of the theology that is not just so we can pass a quiz, but... Our lives will be changed. Jesus is declaring, look, everything is about Jesus. So if you came here this morning thinking that Christianity was in any way about do's and don'ts, rules, regulations, or being good, Jesus here is saying, good's not good enough. But the amazing thing about the gospel, the promise of the gospel is Not just that we are counted with the righteousness of Christ, credited by God as having that. But the promise of the gospel for those who are in Christ is that when Christ is in you, he is at work and renewing our minds so that the attitudes of the Beatitudes begin to take root and become more and more ours. The power that is necessary to have an impact your kids or your parents or family for the gospel to begin to make an impact on the lives of those people who are around you and for the church to have an impact in the culture where we're placed is Christ within us that begins to grow the inside out reality of the promise of the gospel is not only that we are forgiven and we're given a credit but in time by the power of God in accordance with his promise it becomes the reality these things become true of us, and we take on the character of Christ, but it happens when we are focused on Christ, not on ourselves, and not on the law. Let me finish up with this, a story I've told of, of uh, the sculptor Gutz in Borgham. I, nobody came to me after the first service to tell me I said it wrong. That doesn't mean it wasn't wrong. So if you know better, just roll with it because that's what it looks like and I've never heard it spoken. Gutzon-Borgen is the sculptor who did um, the uh, Stone Mountain in Georgia and has done uh, a number of, uh, uh, did Mount Rushmore uh, and then other statues. At One time when he was carving the bust of Lincoln's head that sits in the Capitol Rotunda, the story is told that the lady that came to clean his studio every morning, just kind of watched, was impressed with the way he worked and was just fascinated. And knowing the project, but really not necessarily understanding it, she would come day after day, day after day. And then one day she looked at what he was working on, and she for for the first time saw Lincoln's face. It was far from being done, but she was able to see that begin to manifest itself. And so she asked him the question, how do you see, how did you see Lincoln's face in that stone? Because she was just looking at the marble and and it took time for Lincoln's face to come out. And his response was just simply this, it's just a matter of focus. So while she was looking at the stone, he was looking at the portrait of of Lincoln, and eventually that portrait, his focus, began to come out of that which is stone. Now the reality is he had been unusually gifted, and it wouldn't have come out apart from his skills the reality is, it is still a picture of what is promised and what Jesus is calling our attention to here. It's a matter of focus. If we focus on the law, the do's and the don'ts, or our own righteousness, then we remain like stone. But if we turn our attention and focus on Jesus and what he has promised and what he has done, then more and more we begin. The image of Christ begins to be seen through us. Jesus is calling us and saying this is how we exceed righteousness, not by doing better, trying harder, but by recognizing we can't exceed the righteousness of the law that it demands. But Christ has. In him, we have everything. So may God grant us the grace and the wisdom to turn our attention to the author and perfecter of our faith, that through our focusing on him and what he has done, That he will bring out Christ-like character for all of those who are in Christ and in whom Christ dwells. That's our hope. That's Christianity. That's God's promise. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the word that you've granted. Bless us and be at work in us and continue and complete the work that you've done. We ask this not because we are in need, though we are. We ask this because it is your promise. So, Lord, give us faith and turn our attention over and over to Jesus, his love for us, that we might be what you've called us to be, that we might become your great expectation. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing our praises.